What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Claire Odumodi. Today on our podcast, new antibodies that work against the Omicron variant of COVID-19. That's news from Regeneron. The company's CEO, Len Schleifer. I really could see a world where uh, we may have more than one um, variant circulating and we're going to need to pick and choose our weapons depending upon which one that you have. The Fed turns hawkish, rate hikes and an aggressive wind-down of pandemic emergency measures on the way. You know how your kids, they touch a hot stove once and that's all the lesson they yes, need? Yes, that's what it sounded like from Jay Powell yesterday. We've learned by experience. Reducing the balance sheet is Jay Powell's hot stove. But investors seem okay with that news. I think the, the one way to look at the message of the markets was party on, Garth. I think that was it. Plus, this is boss. Bruce Springsteen's catalogue finding glory days with a new owner. I wonder if it'd just be hard to see, like all of a sudden, your songs popping up in ads of stuff you don't like or other things and losing control of it. Taylor Swift knows. Yeah, knows that all too well. It's Thursday, December 16th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Let's uh, get straight over to our man, Steve Leisman, for what we learned from Jay Powell yesterday. Uh, we learned a lot and the market seemed to like it. Yeah. Uh, you know what happened here, uh, Andrew, is the Fed delivered exactly on the guidance that it had provided, which would means that it's going to quicken the pace of the removal of its pandemic emergency assistance and reverse course and take steps to make fighting inflation the main focus of monetary policy. All these steps were pretty well anticipated. The Fed doubled the pace of its taper to $30 billion a month, uh, and that should end QE by March. It kept interest rates unchanged. But Fed Chair Powell also suggested maximum employment criteria, which was needed to increase rates. Well, it's pretty much been achieved, or nearly achieved, that is. And then the Fed projected three rate hikes next year and three more in 2023. So take a look now. The FOMC now forecasts the funds rate will rise to just under 1% by the end of next year. That's up from 25 basis points in the September forecast. The funds rate now expected at 1.6% by year-end 2023. In fact, 10 of the committee members now see three rate hikes next year. Markets seem to cheer that the long-run outlook looked pretty benign. They also cheered Powell's response when asked why the Fed is continuing to buy assets despite fighting inflation now. We've learned that we're in dealing with balance sheet issues. We've learned that it's best to take a careful sort of methodical approach to make adjustments. Uh, markets can be sensitive to it. And we thought that this was this was a doubling of the speed. We'll, we're basically two meetings away now from from finishing the taper. And we thought that was the appropriate way to go. Uh, so we announced it. And that's that's what will happen. I guess translation is I got your back uh, from Fed Chair Powell to the markets. Question now is not if the Fed will raise rates, but when may remains the meeting priced in, Andrew, for the first rate hike. 
Do you have any new views about Jay Powell? Was there anything in your mind that was, I mean, clearly the market thinks that something was revealed, though pretty much this is what we sort of thought was ultimately going to happen, no? Yeah, look, I have enough trouble sort of with figuring out what's going on in the economy and forecasting monetary policy. It is very difficult to figure out how and why the market reacts the way it does, Andrew. Um, some people said it was less uh, hawkish than they had expected. I thought it was exactly <clears throat> what was expected. What I am interested, Andrew, is this conundrum that Powell may face, which is this. The Fed fights inflation through markets by tightening financial conditions. A higher stock market is looser financial conditions. Unchanged yields is looser financial conditions. So I'm just wondering, on the one hand, you want to marvel at how Powell pulled this off. On the other hand, was he too clever by half here in that he did not cause financial conditions to tighten? That's how you fight inflation. So he may have to lean harder, take the market a little bit by the lapel in the coming months and say, hey, I told you I was raising rates. I'm not 100% sure the market heard that. Steve, there's kind of a perception among, I guess, among the hawkish community that he's talking tough but acting fairly dovish. And the move in the NASDAQ makes me think that that's what the market responded to yesterday. Initially, I thought, wow, look, the market likes that we're tightening and we're going to take on inflation. I don't think that was it. I think the market looked and said, wow, three more months with 7% inflation, three more months of asset of balance sheet expansion. What are we doing? But thank you uh, as a tech stock. And then even in terms of, of you know, rate hikes, exactly what we were thinking. Um, with what I'm looking at the journal piece, 5.3 percent personal consumption expenditure inflation, which is the Fed's preferred uh, metric. I mean, the target was two. We're way above that. And yet we're still treading kind of lightly. But then I, I thought Jay Powell's answer was right on, which is you don't do herky jerky uh, moves just responding to things that it unsettles the markets. So even if you'd like to get, and they are getting tighter. They, they, look, they, they cut the, uh, the, the time frame for, for ending QE. They cut it in half. They, they moved in the dots. They did all that. But it's still gradualism that we're, we're seeing. Joe, I, I think that's smart. I kind of agree with your, your, the hawkish view on that, which is I don't think they're actually doing enough right now. But, but Joe, remember when you were a pink sheet salesman or a broker? What, what is it you were? I forget. But... It, I started guys, as a commodities a broker. There. I started by selling physical right, gold right. out of I some know. guy's bar. It's uh, embarrassing. I don't want to go into that. Let, let's say you're on the phone with one of the marks who you used to talk to. I'm just kidding. Just joking. Um, oh, that's horrible. And, and you had this chart up. up <laughs> you had this, this chart up of, of, your, um, of the Fed funds rate. And you said, hey, the Fed's going to 1.6% in two years. And then in, 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 in 2024, bottom line is what is out there now is is a very, very benign outlook for the Fed. Gradualism. Yeah. You know, 2% by the end of 2024. That's a pretty that? good thing. Now, if that's... It, what's that? Who believes that? I mean, do you look at that and say you think that's realistic and that's where we're really going to be? Because I think we're all kind of dancing around the same thing, which is, is there any way to actually have a soft landing? Can you appease the markets, do this gently, and still do it with enough force to stop inflation? I think there are more people who believe it this morning than maybe believed it yesterday at 159, Becky. I don't know. I mean, what the Fed is saying is this particular trajectory of rates is the one that they believe 
will reduce inflation to its uh, uh, forecast of 2.6%. Now, that's what they believe in aggregate. There are obviously people who we're going to talk to in coming days who may have different views. And it but doesn't the, explain the, thing that, the that, balance that Joe sheet also either. said, well, no, that's right. And that's another thing that hangs out there. But remember, uh, uh, Powell said we're going to be talking about the balance sheet in the weeks to come or in the months to come. But I, that's um, what we don't know. Uh, if so you shrink the decided. balance sheet pretty extensively, that also is a big form of tightening. It's not going to be in the dot plot or anything else that you have here. So... Uh, it's, it's a big yeah. tool. We know it was very useful on the way up. We know it's going to have some impact on the way down if you actually choose to use it. But, but they'll, they'll get there. But it's, it's worth pointing out, Becky, that uh, you know how your kids, they, get, they, hit, they, they touch the hot stove once and that's all they, the lesson they yes, need? Yes, that's what it sounded like from J-Pal yesterday. We've learned <laughs> by, by experience. Reducing the balance sheet is, right. is J-Powell's hot stove, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it's the thing that really has... Uh, uh, he, he really learned and, and, and was chastened by that effort. He'll approach that very slowly. And, and I do know that the Fed thinks that's the least predictable tool, that it, it, it has much more information on how to do things with interest rates than it does with reducing the balance sheet. So I think that's the third order of, of response. They, they may get there, but they'll, they'll, they'll tread very gingerly in that regard. All right, Steve, we got a squawk plan. I, 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 in, in closing, I think the, the one way to look at the message of the markets was party on, Garth. I think that was it, like party on, because we're, I, it, I it's still open, right. baby. I think you're right. Go for it. Yeah. And you saw I, that I think, in the but, text. But, stuff. Joe, I, I, yeah, yeah. But, but here's the thing. Is that, the right, is that right. the right thing? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it's let, copyright. Is that I, I just, the right thing? Yeah, Is that I just don't address inflation. Exactly. And if that's a long that's a long term worry, though, the markets give me, you know, make me chase, but not right now. That's what that, it, that's a, such a great expression right. to use all the time. All right. Thank you, Steve. The covid outbreak hitting Broadway now again. Multiple shows have scrapped performances because of positive tests and concerns about contagion. That includes Tina. Harry Potter, Hamilton, Miss Doubtfire, and Little Shop of Horrors. And um, we told you yesterday that Cornell, my alma mater, had closed its campus due to a COVID outbreak. Princeton, Middlebury, and others have also now shifted to remote exams. NYU canceling non-essential, non-academic events and encouraging uh, faculty to move final exams online. Tulane giving the students the option to finish the semester online. And Apple has once again delayed its plans to return to the office. It plans to bring back employees in January. Now, there's no new date set. It also has closed three retail locations. This after a rise in cases at those stores. Earlier this week, Apple announced all employees and customers at their retail stores, irrespective of being vaccinated, would have to wear masks. But um, we're clearly seeing these cases rise across the country, Becky. Yeah, and I don't know if you've seen the headlines out of the UK, but they are now talking about the highest levels uh, of COVID cases that they've seen since the pandemic began. And that's causing some concerns, too, especially when you think about what Scott Gottlieb told us just a few weeks ago about how the demographics when it comes to who's vaccinated, who has natural immunity uh, or immunity right. from being exposed already to COVID are, are very similar to the UK. What worries us is that if it sweeps across the population and becomes widely epidemic, it's going to find its way into pockets of vulnerability. And the biggest pocket of vulnerability in the U.S. of people who have preserved immunity, meaning that they don't have any immune protection, either from prior infection or through vaccination, are children under the age of 18. Only 25 percent of children under the age of 18 have been vaccinated. Most, most of them are teenagers. 
a generation of kids robbed of, of the, the, maybe the, what I thought was one of the best four years of my life. Um, oh, no, best, best six years of my life. No, but all seven years of all that hard work. No, but uh, not, not to joke about it, like my daughter. I mean, there was no college experience and it's, and it's continuing. I think it's like two and a half years of totally not what college was. And it's high school sad. too. I mean, like, really our, sad. You can't get that back. I know. You can never get that back in, in your life. It is what it is. I, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, that's probably not the worst thing to take away from the pandemic. No, it's, Just another bad thing. It's a reminder thing. of it's how many things have thing. changed and been altered and been taken away, you yeah, know, whether it be right. Christmases that you're talking about. or And I think that's right. why people are so tired of it. Wait, I'm not going to go another Christmas and not see my family. You know, it's... Um, Really yeah. difficult decisions to make. In the meantime, here in the United States, the NFL's COVID problem is getting worse. More than 100 players have tested positive just since Monday. And the league's chief medical officer says roughly two-thirds of those are asymptomatic. Dr. Alan Sills said the rest have symptoms so mild that the players might not have sought a test in ordinary circumstances. And Sills said that the Omicron variant has been detected in test results for multiple teams. The league recently completed an antibody study of 572 staff members and found that they had fairly low levels of antibodies despite being fully vaccinated. In response, the NFL stepped up booster requirements for coaches and staff members, requiring a booster by December 27th. Players are not required to be vaccinated, but they do face stricter protocols, including daily testing if they're unvaccinating. The good news in this is that it's pretty mild from what they've seen in this, and obviously they're testing so frequently there that they're picking up a lot of stuff. A similar story in the NHL, dozens of hockey players have been added to the COVID protocol list since Monday. Several teams have postponed games, including the Calgary Flames, which have uh, 17 team members now on the COVID list. Next on Squawk Pod, Regeneron CEO Len Schleifer on the next generation of antibodies. These infectious diseases are changing, like you're suggesting, at such speed that we need whole new regulatory schema to deal with them. And the old conservative do no harm way has to be rethought because the greater harm might be that we do nothing. We'll be right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Up track, stand by Joe. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Some big news in the fight against COVID just breaking this morning. Let's get right over to Meg Terrell. She's got more on this. Meg? 
Well, Becky, thanks so much. Uh, Regeneron just a few moments ago saying its antibody drug uh, used to treat patients with COVID loses potency against the Omicron variant. Dr. Len Schleifer is the CEO of Regeneron, joins us now live to discuss. Len, thanks for being with us this morning. I think modeling data had suggested this and a lot of folks expected it, but now you are confirming it with the lab data. Of course, your antibody drug does hold up against Delta, which is now the circulating variant, but how concerning are these results? Does it mean if Omicron becomes dominant in certain areas, your drug should no longer be used? Yeah, well, so there's a couple of uh, uh, important things to remember about how we approach all this. First of all, I have to remind everybody, vaccinate, 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 boost, boost, boost. It's still the best uh, uh, way to get things, uh, get people protected. And wear masks, socially distant. Thursday night poker game, if you're playing one, give it up for a while. We're in the midst of a surge. Now, our antibody cocktail works against Delta. Delta is still surging. And so uh, we want to direct that therapy to people who have Delta. But if Omicron starts to surge, we need antibodies that will work against Omicron. Uh, and by the way, I think you covered it on the news very well the other night, uh, Meg, that it's possible that Delta will surge, the flu will surge, and so will Omicron. So we're going to need a full, a full toolkit here. Uh, and we're excited to say this morning that we actually have uh, a whole host of new antibodies which can work against both Omicron and Delta. Uh, so while the current cocktail doesn't, this sort of emphasizes the need to, to play the long game here. We've got new antibodies now that we've tested and they work against both Delta and Omicron. We hope to get in the clinic very early next year with those. We're going to work with the FDA. Um, and by the way, I should say, People think that the healthcare workers, the, the doctors, the nurses, the scientists at the companies in academia, we owe a debt of gratitude to the FDA. They're killing themselves looking at every sort of thing. Uh, and so we're looking forward to hopefully working with them uh, and trying to get the next generation as efficiently as possible uh, because it has to play an important role uh, in our toolkit against uh, COVID. Right, and I wanna ask you about what you think that regulatory process might look like. But before we go there, as you mentioned, there is a philosophy now that we might see Omicron and Delta co-circulating, in which case we need to figure out which one folks have to decide if they should get your antibody drug. Is it possible to do that quickly enough to be able to administer the antibodies, you know, either using PCR tests that have that S gene target failure marker, or can there be rapid genome sequencing to determine the, the variant somebody has? Yeah, Meg, it's a really important point. You know, if you think about when you have an antibiotic infection and you go to the hospital, uh, we don't just randomly guess. We actually can test uh, whether the antibiotic that's chosen matches up against the bacteria that you've got. I think we're going to have to be in that in the virus business. The technology is there. It's not quite where I think where everybody would like us to be in terms of scale, speed, uh, point of care, and so forth. But I really could see a world where uh, we may have more than one um, variant circulating, and we're going to need to pick and choose our weapons depending upon which one that you have. Uh, the tech, we don't need new technology for this. We just have to figure out how to get that out a little bit more efficiently, get it to point of care, uh, get it so it turns around rapidly. We can distinguish technologically between Omicron uh, and Delta and, and anything else that might come along. How quickly do you think these new next generation antibodies could get through the regulatory process? Does it require big clinical trials to show efficacy again? Or can there be some pathway that's creative like we've seen for the vaccines? 
Yeah, I, I think that uh, we're hoping, and we made a proposal just recently to the FDA, uh, that we can use some sort of pathway that looks a little bit like the vaccines. If you have a validated platform uh, that can select antibodies, that can test antibodies, that can scale antibodies, and you can do this safely uh, in terms of your, your manufacturing processes, uh, I think we, we, need, we need to figure out a way that we can get this uh, to patients on a large scale before the next variant shows up. Uh, and we just, we don't wanna be chasing our tail here. So we look forward to working with the agency um, and trying to figure out efficient ways, but safe ways. That's always the tension. You don't wanna go too fast, um, but you don't wanna go so slow as you, you don't do any good. We think our platforms have sort of proven themselves time and time again. And that's why we, we like to think of being in this for the long haul. Uh, you know, the uh, Omicron um, is not the last letter in the Greek alphabet. Um, and uh, I would say that the, the, we have to have a, a scheme that allows us to deal with them as they come up efficiently but safely. Hey, Lynn, I wanted to ask you uh, about just the use of monoclonal antibodies in, in that patient population who is immunocompromised at risk. We've talked about this a lot. Um, you've been advocating and have been before the FDA asking to be able to give those patients use of monoclonal antibodies as a preventative measure, not just if they are actually already exposed to COVID or have COVID. Um, the FDA did give approval for AstraZeneca to do just that a week ago. Do you know anything more about uh, your request for that or if that would be approved at some point? Yeah, well, we don't. We never know if it will be approved. We hope. We know the FDA is uh, committed to looking at it, and we're interacting with them, and we'll respond to any questions that they may have. Um, I think that you know a lot of this gets superseded by what is going to be out there. Um, the concept of prevention with a monoclonal antibody makes great sense. Um, in reality, you got to make sure that you're matching what you're you're giving somebody against what is out there, and maybe you're going to have to have more than one preventative uh, as this, uh, 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 just like you might need more than one vaccine as uh, the variants start to emerge and new ones come. I mean, uh, this is this was a pretty scary uh, mutation. If you think about it, we used to see evolution in this virus sort of step by step. This was leap by leap, giant leap uh, from, to, from the Delta, which had troublesome uh, um, mutations in it. So all of a sudden, something that had 30 or 40, and you mentioned the immunocompromised, there's a fair degree of reasonable scientific speculation that the Omicron uh, uh, emerged because it percolated in an immunocompromised uh, individual. And that's why we believe it's so important to protect the immunocompromised from um, uh, being infected with a variant that their body can't do. Um, we have some interesting data coming out, uh, which I can't quite talk about yet, which I think suggests in the real world, um, uh, immune compromised people can be helped uh, with uh, antibodies. But you you got it. I know you talked about it. I know you're worried. Uh, I don't want to get into your personal family, but I know you mentioned on the air about your mom. I hope she's doing well. And you can tell her we're certainly working hard. Uh, and I know the agency, the FDA, is working hard also to try and figure out the best way to deal with. Yeah, it's, it's not just my mom; it's the you know millions of people who are out there in the same. No, position. no. I, 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 kudos to you, Becky. I know that we we've talked about that. You, you you're not doing this just for your mom. You might, there, there, there's a whole 10 million people out there, and this is something that we all want to address. Um, and we are working hard. The FDA did authorize the first prevention, that was great um, with AstraZeneca's product, good for them there. 
we'd like to have one also. None of us can make enough to supply the entire need here. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're working at this. Well, Lynn, that's what I wanted to ask you about. But I also wanted to ask you about the trajectory of, of this particular variant, which is to say, given how it transmits and how quickly and efficiently, uh, unfortunately, it seems to do that, or, and maybe it'll turn out to be fortunate, is it possible that we do have a wave, the wave effectively crests, and by the time uh, you're able to either come up with uh, or, or have this, this new drug available, or frankly, even whether Pfizer is able to actually produce enough of their own pills that we're already going to be on to the next, and how we should even think about that? Andrew, you know, you, you've asked the question that I can guarantee you a lot of smart people in industry and in government and academia are trying to wrestle with. Um, we're not used to uh, uh, our whole approach um, in terms of all those groups I just mentioned are not used to dealing with things uh, on such a rapid scale. We're developing a drug for, you know, uh, let's say one of our drugs for macular degeneration, ILEA, or our Dupixin drug for uh, some allergic diseases such as really bad eczema. You know, you don't have that same emergency. And once you get it, um, the disease isn't changing. These infectious diseases are changing, like you're suggesting, at such speed that we need whole new regulatory schema to deal with them. And the old conservative do no harm way has to be rethought because the greater harm might be that we do nothing. So we have to weigh these things. I know people are thinking about this very carefully. Um, but in the meanwhile, by the way, I got to say, mask, socially distant, get your booster. Um, there, are there are measures that we can take right now that uh, will help us. But we do have to go faster and figure this out. An important message. Len Schleifer, we really appreciate you being here with us this morning and helping us untangle all of this new information. Thanks again. Thanks, Meg. Thanks, everybody. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Bruce Springsteen has sold his entire music catalogue to Sony, and the size of that deal has got us thinking. What about the Squawk archives? I don't think we own those. I don't think we're worth half a billion either. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Meet Gail. Her thing is being a supermom, and supermom has a lot on her supersized plate. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. But at Walmart Pharmacy, Supermom recently got her whole family updated on all their vaccines. We knocked it out during a grocery run. No appointment. That's Next Level Supermom. From pneumonia to shingles, HPV, and more, get no-cost vaccinations from an expert pharmacist where you already shop. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. $0 copay with most insurances. State age and health restrictions may apply. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. 
Bruce Springsteen has sold his music rights to Sony in a deal that may exceed half a billion dollars. The New York Times reported the deal, which includes his recorded music catalog and his body of work as a songwriter. If the reported price tag is correct, it is the big, biggest deal of its kind ever. Bob Dylan, you may remember, sold his songwriting rights to Universal Music last year. That was for an estimated $300 million, and I remember thinking at the time what an eye-popping number that it was, but uh, Bruce Springsteen definitely has a very long cat big, long uh, time that he's been doing this and a big catalog, right, Andrew? It's amazing. I mean, the real question is, at, at this point in his career, what's he going to, you know, you sell it, then what do you do with it? You know, what do you do with the money? What if you where don't would sell the, it? Where would the catalog if you don't sell it, Otherwise, yeah, but what, what if you, you don't? That, what if you don't sell it? Don't you think David Bowie's glad he finally sold his before you, you know, before there's no reason? <laughs> and then to, it becomes part, of, it would become part of your estate, I imagine. But, and then, and then what does Sony do with it? How do they exploit it? I that mean, would look, be the, the only thing. I wonder if it'd just be hard to see, like, all of a sudden, your songs popping up in ads of stuff you don't like or other well, things, true, losing yeah. control of it. Taylor like, Swift knows knows yeah knows that all too well. That. What about the Squawk archives? Do you? I mean, is that? I don't think uh, we own those. You and I and Andrew, somebody really? else has rights to those. Do you think we're really missing out on a big payday? I don't think we're worth half a billion I mean, either. When they start selling Squawk NFTs, yes, you will feel like you're missing out. There will be a run on Squawk NFT. I, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure. We, you know what? Let's let's do the uh, let's do what's 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 his name? We had him on. Let's start talking about how much they're worth on the show <laughs> and citing and then citing Squawk Box as these NFTs you mean the are. Yeah, yeah, that was a great business. I love that business model. What finally happened there, Andrew? Do we know? Is that uh, is it still? I think that he, I, the last report that I, I, I read in some of the work that I did on this, uh, this a couple of weeks ago was that there's an investigation going on that oh I believe the security exchange commissioner are looking at the situation let's not in, terms do that. Of, in terms of misleading, potentially misleading investors and, 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 whether, and whether that took place. I would settle okay. for a squawk coffee mug. We haven't had one of those in about right, 12 or right. 14 years. Coming up, a priceless Squawk NFT. It's been called priceless by Becky. <laughs> no, that was all you. That's our port for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern to get the smartest takes and analyses from our TV show right into your ears. Listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Have a lovely day, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.